This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we begin our look at the life of Jacob, starting with Genesis 25 and moving through chapter 31. So we begin to wrestle with this question of who is Jacob and why does right. God use him? Right. Third out of four patriarchs, uh, we have Avraham, we have Yitzhak, and then Yitzhak's sons, Jacob and Esau. And and uh, yeah, this is a big, man, the life of Jacob has always been really tough for me. Um, I still wrestle with it today. And I learned, I mean, all the stuff that I've been studying, my, my Genesis material has been greatly influenced by um, Rabbi Damon Foreman. We've talked about that before. Um, his work at Aleph Beta, but long before he had Aleph Beta, uh, I was following some of his teaching online from the Hofberger Institute uh, and different things there. It's no longer available, but um, I learned a ton of stuff through Genesis, and I have continued to learn a ton of stuff about the life of of Jacob uh, through guys like Foreman and even others, but it's still a character I struggle with. I think a lot of people do. Uh, you you want to discount him? You want to write Jacob off because he was such a deceiver, such a uh, a, a usurper? Uh, people talk about his name meaning deceiver. His name more literally means heel holder, heel grasper is more what the name literally means. And I think we too often flippantly write him off as just his name means liar. Um, I named my, my son Ezekiel, his middle name, after Jacob. Um, because there's most definitely a positive that I kind of want to pull out today in our discussion. But uh, it'll be another day without a PDF for those of you listeners that have written me and told me how much you appreciate that and hope that I do on every episode. Sorry about that. Another another conversation. I just want to kind of walk through. And Brent, you can throw and fire questions off at me. I just I don't have these big thunderous lessons on the life of Jacob because I'm still wrestling with the life of Jacob. I'm trying to figure out what to do with a guy who um, is who Jacob is and also becomes the father of God's people. I mean, the Israelites, Yisrael. It's going to be named after this guy, and we'll get to that um, in our next podcast. But I want to kind of walk through the first half of his life today. So we're going to pick up Genesis 25, what we skipped last uh, episode. And... um Towards the end there, in verse, uh, let's see here, looks like verse 19 I'm going to pick up. Uh, This is the account of the family line of Avraham's son Yitzhak. Avraham became the father of Yitzhak, and Yitzhak was 40 years old when he married Rivka, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and the sister of Levan, the Aramean. Yitzhak prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rivka became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Yitzhak was 60 years old when Rivka gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac 
who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rivka loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's also why he was called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, and he ate and drank and then got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. Now, we haven't really talked about birthrights up to this point, but one of the things that happens in this ancient patriarchal culture is you always have a firstborn son. In the Hebrew, he'd be known as the Bechor. And the Bechor is the firstborn, and he's responsible first and foremost. He's the one that carries the soul. Uh, he's the sole carrier of the primary responsibility to carry on the legacy of his father. So whatever his father does, whatever whoever his father is, whatever his father stands for, it's the firstborn son who's going to carry that on in perpetuity. So uh, this this Bahor gets a double portion in this world. We'll talk about that more later. But the firstborn son, the Bahor always gets a double portion. So if a, if a man has three sons, he'd split his estate four ways and give two shares to the Bahor. If a uh, father had two sons, it would be split three ways and give a double portion. Six sons, seven ways, you get the idea. So the Bahor always gets a double portion, but it's not just about blessing. He gets the double portion because he also has a double portion of responsibility. So at this point in the story, we've now seen two generations. We've watched Avram and we've watched his son Yitzhak. And we actually said last week, the whole point of our podcast was that the promises made to Avram, Avraham were being realized in the story of Yitzhak. Yitzhak was actually, we were seeing the promises and the mission of God begin to be fulfilled in the story of Isaac. And now that story, this successful mission of God is now supposed to be passed on to Esau. He is the Bahor. He's the older. He was born first. Jacob came out after grasping his hill. And so the right of the Bahor goes to Esau. So we have these two guys and we're told they're quite a bit different. We're told that we've got like kind of the man's man, the masculine Esau, the hunter great hunter, mighty man Esau, and he loves his wild game, and he loves all things manly, and his dad has this favorite, favoritism, this dispensation towards his son Esau. And we're told in other parts of the story, we're told that Jacob likes to stay at home, and he's the mama's boy, and Rivka has a special place in her heart for Jacob. And as the story progresses, we get this really weird uh, part of the story where all of a sudden Esau's coming in from the fields and Jacob just happens to be perfectly placed, cooking a nice pot of stew. And through the course of the story, Esau kind of sells his birthright. And for a lot of us that have studied the book of Genesis, we're like, I get it, but what's the big deal? The fact that Esau cares so little about his role and his responsibility in this world, like He is the guy who's supposed to carry on the promise of God. And he's like, eh, whatever. And typically the Behor, like you take this on as it's, it's not an obligation. Like, uh, I gotta, I guess I gotta take care of everything once dad passes away. Like it's an honor. 
Absolutely. It's a privilege right. to be the firstborn. Right. And you see that in Jacob. Jacob wants it. Like at this point, Jacob's not trying to get anything. Like, yeah, he's going to get a double portion, but he's also going to get the double portion of responsibility. Like Jacob wishes he was the person who had Esau's opportunity for influence. So this is this is not something that is purely a burden. This is something that people seek out. And Jacob, even though it's not his, boy, he wants it. And he's, he's, he's wanting to even steal it uh, from his brother Esau. So uh, anyway, so I just kind of want to walk through. We're not going to read the whole thing, obviously, but I want to walk through the next few chapters. We'll skip 26 because we covered that in the last episode. But when we pick back up with the story of Jacob in, in 27... Uh, this is where uh, Jacob's going to successfully not just steal the birthright, but now he's going to steal the blessing. And so in a in a setup uh, kind of put forth by mom, Rivka, she sends uh, Jacob in. We're told that Isaac is old and blind and can't see. And so his wife, Rebecca, she sends her favorite son, Jacob, in. Uh, famous story, obviously, dressed... Uh, kind of dressed in sheepskin, so he's hairy like his brother, puts on his clothes so he smells like his brother. She has him cook up some meat, some game, just like he likes it. This whole thing is set up by Rivka. Now, is that because she is a... I wish we had the details to the story. Like, I wish we knew all the backdoor conversations that happened. Uh, is this because Rivka's just as deceitful and conniving as she appears or is like Jacob. Does Jacob get his deceitful ways from his mother? Or is this because Rivka was told by God who was going to serve who? And she knows how the story is supposed to go. And she's trying to make that happen. Was what she was told by God something she shared with, with Isaac or something she kept to herself. Did she share it with Isaac and have Isaac go, absolutely not. There's no way I'm giving the birthright. There's no way I'm giving the blessing. There's no way I'm giving that to my second son. I'm giving it to Esau. And did she have to like battle and fight in order to try to get God's uh, kind of God's promise and the plan that she had gotten from God back when she was pregnant? To, I just wish we had the details and we knew how the relationship between her and Isaac and the favorite sons, how that all worked. And regardless of how it played out, like to hear something from the Lord and be that confident in it and have that much trust in, in what God has told you to make it happen. Like, right. I mean, that's, that's pretty serious. Right. And let's assume that they did have a great marriage and a wonderful conversation. And let's assume that Rivka was like, listen, God told me that Jacob was supposed to be the guy. You need to give the blessing to Jacob, not to Esau. Like, really? Like what person is going to look at this dysfunctional family and go, yeah, I'm going to trust the promise of God to the deceitful little mama's boy over here. I mean, our world just would gravitate towards the guy who has it all together does it all according to the rules, we would look at the Esau and be like, listen, the promise of God is a whole lot safer in the hands of the guy over here playing by the rules and playing it safe. And you're right. How much faith does it take to look at a guy like Jacob as screwed up and dysfunctional as he appears to be in this story in his immaturity and say, no, he, he's, he's the guy. Like, what is it that God's going to see in this guy? And that's kind of what we'll talk about today about. 
And so she sends him in there and, and we kind of know how it goes. He tricks Esau out of, out of the blessing, which is always a fun, funny conversation. Cause I think in our culture, we read this story and we think, why doesn't he just kind of like take it back? <laughs> why doesn't he just take back the blessing or, or give another blessing to Esau or kind of undo it? Or it's just a blessing. Like, what's the big deal? Like just say it doesn't count. Um, uh, and, and one of the things we don't understand in our culture is how the, how the Eastern Hebrew culture uh, deals with words. Like somewhere along the way, Isaac crafted two blessings for his two sons that he believed had been given to him by God. He prayerfully went about crafting these blessings. And these blessings were pronouncements about what you thought the future held for them. And so he had these blessings. And for the, for the, for the Westerner, for you and me, we think words, what's the famous saying about, you know, words? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Right. I mean, words are just words, right? They're just like empty conduits through which, like the power lies in truth. Like in the Western culture, power is truth. Words are empty. Words are just a conduit for truth. But truth is where the power lies. Who cares if you say it? I know it's not true, so it doesn't matter. Right, exactly. Well, words are just words. But in the Eastern culture, word is power. A a Jew would immediately take us back to Genesis 1 and say, God spoke the world into existence. Words have more power than we could ever realize. Once this prepared blessing is out of the mouth of Isaac. He can't in his world, and maybe in the world as we should understand it, he can't just take it back. The words have gone forth and the words are efficacious. They have they have something that those words are going to accomplish. Those words have in his mind come from God and they're going to do their work. And so he, he, he gives the blessing to the wrong son and Esau comes in and the mistake is realized. And now Esau weeps bitterly because he wants, he wants a, he wants a blessing that now he can't get because now he has to be the recipient of the second blessing that I'm sure Esau prepared in advance for Jacob, not Esau, excuse me, Isaac prepared in advance for Jacob. In advance, like... 20, 30, 40 years, who knows? Like, who knows? He's been working on this for a long time. This he, is the end of his life. He has definitely been working on the ideas for a long time. The blessing itself, who knows? That could have been very recent, but he has watched these sons. He's thought about the future of his family. Uh, this has not been something that is some quick uh, little ditty. So, you know, I'm going to move on to Genesis 28. Uh, so he gets the blessing and, um, uh, Jacob ends up having to hit the road, obviously, because things at home aren't, uh, it's not going to go real well for him. Esau's out for blood. Jacob has to leave. It's what, it's what being shrewd and crafty and deceitful, or at least being shrewd and crafty in a deceitful way is going to get you. Um, your methods actually do matter, even if they were towards the wrong end. And so he takes off and he's only got one place to go. We have one other place that this family turns whenever they need something. And who has that been? Uh, they turn to uh, Nahor. 
Yeah, that's right. They go to the the other kind of side of the family of Terah. They go to their other family line. Jacob now can't stay in his patriarch's Badov. He only has really one Badov that he can turn to that's even remotely close to the same culture and subculture and even mission that God has called them to, and it's the family of Terah. And so he goes to the house of Levan, who is the grandson of Nahor, Avraham's brother. And this is actually the same generation as Rebecca, right? The, this is going to be the same generation as Jacob, the grandson of Nahor, and Jacob is the grandson of Avraham, uh, which I find oh, right. so I interesting because we saw an Abraham and then we saw an Isaac, kind of like a, a continuation of the promise of God. We saw Nahor, and we saw the second generation, Rivka, being a person of hospitality. When you get to the grandchildren's generation, we now have Jacob, and we haven't really talked about it yet, but he kind of seems to mess up the story of God's people. Like, everything is kind of going really good until you get to Jacob. And in Nahor's family line, you see the same thing. Like, we haven't talked about Laban yet, but Laban's going to be just as sneaky, just as crafty, just as much of kind of a conniving snake as Jacob's going to be. I'm pretty sure there's one other person in between Rebecca. In between Rebecca and and uh Nahor. And Nahor? Isn't it isn't it Rebecca the daughter of Nahor's son? I thought she was a sister. You might be right. I would have to go back and check. I could be wrong. But she married into the second generation. Yes. And so Rivka enters into the second generation. And we do know that Levan is but I think you're right because I thought that Rivka, well, now you got me asking all kinds of weird questions. But yeah, uh, we are told here in this story that Levan is, uh, in Genesis, we're going to be told Levan is the grandson to Nahor. Where Rivka falls, you now have me asking all kinds of questions. I, I meant to bring that up in the last episode and the conversation veered away from it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure she's, it was like uh, Bethuel. Yes, son of Bethuel. Yep. Yep. Yeah. He was he's the, the son of Nahor, The daughter right? of Bethuel, son of Nahor. Was he a yeah. son of Nahor? I like that. Okay. I like that. I think you're right. Hold on, now you got me curious. So I'm right. sitting right here on the podcast going back. We'll find out. Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready right now. Let's see here. Let's see here. I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milka bore to Nahor. Yes. All right. So she's the granddaughter. So Levan is the grandson. Well, Milka, Milka was not uh, barren like Sarai, so... They got they got started. They got started a little earlier. <laughs> I like that. And by the time Isaac is ready for a, a wife, it's two generations down the line on the other side of the family. <laughs> I like that. Well, thank you for correcting me on that. That's, that's excellent. But, so, yeah. That, I mean, that's a good point. She, like the servant goes and finds her, and she is the kind of person who belongs in this second, in yeah, the second, the second slot. Tier. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a wonderful point. Um, okay, so uh, Jacob's on his way to Levan when he ends up having this dream on his way there. Now, what's interesting is, uh, let's see here. What does it say in the English? Um, when he reached a certain place, verse 11 of Genesis 28, when he reached a certain place, in the Hebrew there, it almost implies in the middle of nowhere's nowhere. It's kind of this redundant nothingness which is a Hebrew way of saying, uh, I think this actually comes from Kushner. Uh, there's a work by Kushner uh, called God Was in This Place. Um, I heard the teaching originally uh, 
conveyed to me by Mr. Rob Bell, but uh, there was a a book out there by Kushner that talked about um, uh, this passage, and he's he's there is nothing significant about where he's at, and it's the Hebrews way of saying. He's in the middle of nowhere significant. I think we've been to a few places like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, we have. Yeah, we have. And uh, and and he ends up falling asleep, sleeping on a rock, and he has this vision, which I'm sure if I slept with my head on a rock, I'd probably have some strange dreams too. But nevertheless, he has this vision of uh, a ladder and these angels ascending and descending. And and uh, one of the one of the coolest statements that gets made that uh, Kushner writes about is. Um, he wakes up and he says, God was in this place. And I just wasn't aware of it. And it's this awareness of God's holiness and the sacredness of what God's doing in the world is present no matter where or who you're at. Um, but it's just, it's this pretty good dream. It will come back later in the, in the new Testament. So it's a pretty good, uh, story. We'll keep moving though. Um, we end up moving on to Genesis 29. Uh, Jacob does arrive in Padanaram. He meets Lavan, and uh, and Lavan has these two daughters. The older one, her name is Leah. The younger one, her name is Rachel. Rachel. Um, Leah means tired eyes, which is a Hebrew way of saying uh, not very attractive. Uh, my apologies to any layers out there. I do not mean to offend, but uh, that's just in the Hebrew. What it's trying to convey: tired eyes would be not bright, not beautiful eyes, kind of tired eyes, uh, unattractive. And then Rachel has this um, uh, this beauty about her. He sees Rachel. And he's just like, wow, man, I gotta, I gotta marry her. Like I'm interested in marrying her. So Levon makes this deal, like. Obviously, you can work for me for seven years, seven being the appropriate number to use there, and I'll give you Rachel. Now, what I, what's so interesting, what I kind of love from a, um, just a reader's perspective of this story is Jacob has run to the house of Nahor and met his match <laughs> because this is a pure setup um, because what happens is he works for seven years for Rachel. And and then the wedding happens, but Levan sneakily gives him Leah instead. And he's like, oh, well, culture, I mean, culture, you, you know, culture is, cult, you can't give the, you can't give the younger daughter without giving the older daughter. You know that this was a setup. You know that Levan is just as good as being deceitful and sneaky. Zhaakov has met his match. And of course, he realizes it and decides to work for another seven years. He's already consummated the marriage. There's no going back. There's no return policy. He has to work another seven years for for Rachel, and the scripture in this beautiful romantic way says, working those seven years was like a day. He was so in love with her. But he finally ends up uh, getting both daughters. I just love the story as it plays itself out that it becomes clear that Jacob is up against his match. And so we end up having, as we turn into Genesis 30, this kind of, um, we have this uh, kind of like a competition, kind of like a uh, a usurping competition going on. Who can usurp who the most? So Jacob is now down. He's now falling behind in this little competition. And so he ends up uh, working out this deal uh, where 
as he starts having children and his family expands, he knows that he needs to leave. He can't stay here forever. He's going to have to strike out on his own. He's now starting to acquire wealth as he works for Levan. And so he tells him, you know, I'm going to have to take my, my wives and my children, and I'm going to have to leave. Uh, and Levan says, but how can I send you away? I don't have anything to give you. And Jacob arranges a steal. He says, listen, I've worked for you incredibly hard with all my strength, he says. I've worked with you for all, with all my strength uh, all these years. Just give me a portion of your flock. I'll tell you what. We, uh, I'll take... I'll take this group of sheep here. We got streaked sheep. We got spotted sheep, speckled sheep. I'll take this group of sheep. You can keep the others and we'll over this next period of time and we'll, we'll call it good. And there's this really weird story about how he waters the sheep and takes branches and pulls off the bark so that it's streaked and spotted. It's like, like what am I reading? Is this witchcraft? Like what's, like what's going on? Which will actually be quite appropriate. One of the things we'll talk about is the parallels between Jacob's story and uh, Joseph's story. And uh, Joseph has a lot of these very same elements. We're told he has a cup later in Genesis. Joseph has a cup, a diviner's cup, uh, that he he does his divination with. Like, what? <laughs> Joseph's doing... So there's these weird elements of these stories we're just not given a whole lot of detail on. But the, the root of the story is clear, and that is that you know Jacob is finding a way to trick. Uh, and it appears to be with God's help. It appears that God's behind all this. Like, how in the world does he pull off speckled sheep and striped sheep, streaked sheep? Like, God has to be behind this some way. He claims in the story, and when he talks to his wives, he claims it's a, he got this information in a dream. We weren't told about the dream. We don't know if that's true. Is he lying? He's pretty good at that. Um, but God seems to be behind this. And so finally, he takes off. Laban's attitude changes towards him. And, uh, and he definitely has to flee. Jacob's always fleeing. That's what happens when you use Jacob's methods. And Jacob finds himself having to flee. What he doesn't know is that Rachel has stolen Laban's idols. So now all of a sudden we're confronted with, there is a difference. You were, you were talking, uh, Brent, last episode. Why was Avraham so adamant that Isaac not go and stay? with the family of Nahor. And now we, we might get an indication here in this story because we're told that they have idols. She steals Laban's idols. So this side of Terah's family hasn't given up all of their idolatry. Whatever, whatever their God worship does look like, it does not look like the worship of this one true monotheistic work of Avraham. We have some idolatry uh, might have been one of the reasons why Avraham said, you can't go settle there because we're trying to do something new. We're trying to get our story right. And so she brings these idols out. Uh, obviously, Jacob doesn't know it, but Laban does, and he comes after his idols. And uh, Jacob never really finds out in this portion of the story what's happened. Rachel hides them under her cushion and claims she's on her menstrual period and can't get up. And uh, and. And so she ends up successfully hiding these idols. And the whole story culminates at the end. They have to make this huge, uh, uh, it's kind of like their their usurping battle. The battle of the usurpers finally comes to an end here at the end of chapter 31. And, uh, and they decide that they can't figure out who's in the wrong. Laban knows that his idols have been stolen. 
Jacob has no idea what he's talking about. He's completely ignorant, at least as the story is being told. And uh, But they have to somehow find a way to call a truce. And so I'm going to start, uh, I'll read the last little bit of this section here. I'm going to start in verse 43 of Genesis 31. Levan answered Jacob, the women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine, yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. And so Jacob took a stone and he set it up as a pillar and he said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap and they ate there by the heap. Levan called it Yegar Sahad. Sahaduta, and Jacob called it Galahid. Levan said, this heap is a witness. Uh, by the way, before I move on, I should point out there in verse uh, 46, um, it says here that they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. They're trying to make a, recon- a reconciliatory covenant. And so they set up this heap of stones and then have a meal. And a meal in an ancient Eastern culture was a way of, you did not eat with a person. You did not eat with a family. You did not break bread or share a meal unless you were uh, in a reconciled relationship. You would not break bread with an enemy. So having a meal was a way of saying, you and I are good. And so they set up this thing, they have a meal, and then they're, they're talking about what to call this place. And so they can't, you know, they, they call it each their own name. And then Levon says, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it was called Galahid. It was also called Mitzpah. This thing has so many names. My goodness. Can't figure out how to name this thing. There's obviously some form of disagreement here. Because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take away any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Levan also said to Jacob, which I think, by the way, is one of those. And Levan said, yada, yada, yada. And Levan said, Jacob kind of says, okay. Just sitting there. Just sitting there. All right. No response from Jacob. Levan also said to Jacob, this is the heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Yitzhak. He had offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. And after they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Levon kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And he left and he returned home. Now, as I read that closing section of that chapter, I believe that what I'm reading there is they go to make this reconciliatory truce. And Jacob sets up a monument, a pillar, a covenant, and they go to break bread. And Levon says, oh, wait a minute. I don't think your God and your covenant and your pillar is good enough. So Levon then sets up a second pillar and he makes sure that he makes and swears this oath and this covenant by the God of both Avraham and Nahor, 
Levan swears his covenant by the God they worshipped before Avraham left this house and started his newfangled thing. And I feel like that's reinforced in the text because they eat a second time. It's like, it's like they go to have a meal and make things right. And Levan's like, nah, I'm not having it. I'm going to make this according to my rules, and we're going to have another meal. When this thing parts, this is like the most unreconciled reconciliation <laughs> that I've... I mean, this is like the great story of two usurpers. Well, and even the the footnote that I'm reading here, the Yagar Sahaduta uh, that Levon used, and yes. then the Galahid that Jacob used, uh, it says the, the one Levon used is Aramaic. Yes. So they're not even speaking the same language. Correct. And there'd be, a, uh, I think, considerable debate about whether Aramaic would be the appropriate response there. But yes, it seems to be a different language, a more Semitic language that he's used to from where he comes from versus the Hebrew that they accredit to Sha'akov. And obviously, like they've been together for 20 years, it says, or whatever. Right. Uh, obviously, they can communicate. Right. I would say this is much more But they're more like, the... hey, I'm going to call it right. my tradition's exactly. way. Exactly. And Jacob's like, nah, I'm going to do it my way. And... Right. Because practically, are they speaking two different languages? Uh, absolutely not. This is the author's and the narrative's way of drawing this distinction even more cleanly. Now we're right in the middle of Jacob's story. So it's kind of a horrible place to end part one, but I wanted to end part one with this kind of big observation about why does God choose to work through this guy? Like he is the biggest usurper, conniving, slick, sly. It's just such a and when I go back to the beginning of where we started today, I think I get this indication. God God has two guys to choose from. And we talked earlier, the world might not make the same choice that God decides to make. But if God has to choose between two guys, one who has a fire in his belly, and he's got some horrible methods, and maybe even some bad motivations, but he wants it. Like he wakes up in the morning, he wants it. And then you got the other guy, plays by the rules, shows up on time, does everything the right way. He's even stronger. Stronger. According to the Lord. Stronger. It's like, hey, one nation's going to be stronger, yep. but the older's going to serve the younger. Absolutely. Yeah. He's got a, He's got everything going for him. World looks at him. Yep. That's a good guy. Nice. Safe. Clean. Just doesn't care. Just doesn't care. God says, I would rather take the person who wants it, who's going to get up and go dig for it, push for it. Do everything it takes. I can I can help steer a moving target, and I can work on those methods that Jacob's got that are so destructive. I can work on that. It's a whole lot easier for God to shape some methods and to give us some, uh, some different weapons to work with instead of selfishness to give us selflessness, instead of pride to give us humility, instead of greed to give us generosity. It's a whole lot easier to move a moving target and change the details than it is to light a fire under somebody who's just apathetic and doesn't care. And I think that gives great hopes uh, to a lot of us because there are a lot of us at different times in our life. And there are a lot of us that are just flat out Jacobs. And I know there are a lot of my listeners and you, you've, been a, you've been a Jacob. Like, you know, you're a Jacob, you know. And I take great hope in a story like Jacob and Esau. Because if you got a fire in your belly, 
God wants it. The Hebrews call it chutzpah. It's the it's that stuff that's down deep inside of you that makes you makes you a little dangerous. God God wants that stuff, and He wants to put it to use. And He'd rather work with a Jacob than try to convince an Esau that it's worth it. So I take great faith in the story of Jacob. And that's the first half. We're not done yet because it's also going to cost him something. I'm not saying that being a Jacob is free of consequence. Far from it. It's going to cost Jacob an awful lot. Already has, to be quite honest. We're not done yet. But uh, if you're a Jacob, take solace because God, God can still use you. God wants to use you. It's good stuff. Yep. All right. If you live on the Palouse, join us for our discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BaymonDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.